Thank you, gentlemen, for leading us in worship. Before we get going today, let's go before the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much uh, for this season and for the reason why we celebrate. Uh, We celebrate your coming. We celebrate uh, you being here now. And we celebrate the fact that you are coming again. Uh, It is our hope this day, every day, uh, until that day, forever. And uh, we thank you for this space that we get to worship you, this space that we get to look to you. Uh, We need you. Uh, We don't want this time to uh, be about anything other than you. And we need the power of your spirit to change our hearts, uh, to even give us what we need to, to look to you. And uh, that's what we want to do today, because uh, we know that if we look anywhere else, uh, what happens as a result is nothing that we want. And so we look to you today, and we ask you to do uh, infinitely more than we could ever ask. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. <clears throat> well, today we are going to be continuing our Christmas series And I can't really call this a Christmas sermon, Um, no more than I can call Die Hard a Christmas movie, because there's some Christmas lights and a couple nods to Jingle Bells. It's not a Christmas movie. I'll fight you after this if you want on that. Um, Today is less about the blessing of his coming, and it's more about uh, the blessings that he brought with him. Uh, in his coming, the continued blessings that we experience uh, even today, uh, and we will experience until that day when we are with him forever. Um, Because for us today, uh, as is pretty obvious, uh, he no longer resides in in a quiet little stable in Bethlehem. Right, even though uh, that's where our minds go when we think of the Christmas season. Instead, he resides in the hearts of all who by faith call on his name as their Lord and Savior. That's where Jesus resides today. And if he truly resides in us and is continually with us as his word attests that he is, then we will never truly find the end of the blessing for us in Emmanuel, God with us. Paul's prayer that Jeremy read already, that we're going to read again here in a moment, uh, in Ephesians chapter 3, speaks to the reality of where Christ now resides and the blessings that are associated with that reality. This isn't where we are going to land for the day, but it's certainly where we need to begin. Follow along with me as I read, starting in verse 14. Paul writes, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your innermost being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge 
that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Wow. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. And there's enough there to unpack for quite a while, isn't there? We could probably just stop there, close in prayer, and say, just go chew on that for the week. Emmanuel, God with us, now Christ in us, dwelling in the hearts of all who ask him to be the Lord and Savior of their lives and for their sin, desiring to fill us with the fullness of God drawing the roots of our hearts further into the unending depths of his love for us. A love that we are both invited to know and informed well in advance that we're never going to fully know. We're never going to reach the the end of that barrel of love, which results in a power that he works in us and through us that is abundantly able to do far more than we could ever ask or think, all resulting in the eternal glory of God. Today I hope we see that Christ being with and within his followers makes the impossible possible. I know that last phrase sounds kind of corny, right? It makes the impossible possible. We can scale mountains and we can dunk basketballs on 14-foot rims because in Christ I can do all things. No, I don't mean that. I mean what is truly impossible in of ourselves, right? The things that we should desire as His children to bring about lasting change within us, to produce lasting fruit in us, to look anything different than what we would look like left to our own devices when we place our faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, when we ask Him to not only be the covering for our sins, but the Lord of our lives, and we lay our lives before Him, when He comes within us, when He makes temple in our hearts, when He dwells within our space, that makes that which is impossible to do on our own possible. Not because of who we now are, but because of the one who now resides in us. We need to see this. We need to taste this reality because it is the, it's the stuff of the Christian life and we ain't going to get very far without it. We saw last week how Jesus being with us and in us makes true joy possible even in the face of some really hard circumstances that we go through. Today we are going to look at how this same truth makes true peace and contentment possible in a world that is steeped in envy and jealousy. Pastor Chris noted last week that there are many things in our broken world that are looking to rob us of our joy. And I think we can say that there are as equal number of things that are looking to rob us of uh, our contentment, of our peace, especially during the holiday season, right? Uh, I mean, it, it, you, you can just drive down your block and you can see your neighbor who paid money to get their Christmas lights hung. Who are you people out there? Like, seriously, you just, you just have expendable income where you're just like, yeah, I'll just pay someone to hang the Christmas lights up. And then I look at 
my job when I pull up into my driveway and I'm like, boy, they're making me look bad. You know, like I don't, I don't even have like the upper deck done because I fear for my own life. And so I just have like this single pathetic Charlie Brown type strand on my, on my, my bottom row of the house. We don't live in a ranch, but I decorate like it's a ranch. And then I see my neighbors and they've got like this swooping effect in their trees. And it's like, it's perfect. You can't even see the cords. You know, what, on mine, there's like, there's power cords hanging everywhere. And I'm just like, how did they do? Oh, oh, there's a sign in the front yard. They paid someone. Must be nice. Must be nice. Must be nice when I get your professionally done Christmas card in the mail. You know, the one you didn't print yourself. The one that didn't come out blurry. The one where all of the imperfections were like masterfully taken. Yeah, that, that must be real nice. That must be real nice. Or, or when I go on any form of social media and see where you spend your Christmas. No, not in Indiana where it probably won't even snow. Probably won't even be a white Christmas. It'll probably be a brown and gray Christmas. It'll probably rain like it does on most years. No, you, you, you get to spend it in the tropics. You get, oh, just enjoying Christmas on the beach with a drink and it's all wonderful. Who are you people? Why? Why do you get that life? Why don't I get that life? I don't really understand that. I know we laugh and we joke. Uh, and it's, it's funny to poke at these funny things. But guys, seriously, the holidays are hard. The holidays are really hard for some of us. And you don't have to scroll very long before you're wondering, why do their kids come home for Christmas? Why don't mine? Why do they have somebody on Christmas and I don't? How do they afford to give their family that type of Christmas and I can't, no matter how hard I try? The holidays can be just an absolute breeding ground for envy and jealousy if we let it. And so there's got to be something in the person and work of Jesus that allows us to enter into this space and have any kind of hope for something different. And again, maybe jealousy and envy isn't your thing today. That's what we're focusing on. But I encourage you, as we go through this, even as right now we're like, oh man, I'm not, I'm not that person. That's not me. You probably are a little bit. Let's be honest, we all kind of are a little bit, so stop. Um, but, but maybe that's like not your rager sin that goes on inside of you. Maybe it's just this little like, boop, every once in a while. You're like, oh, what was that? That was ugly. Um, if that's you and that's really going on inside you, great. We're going to double down on that today. If it's not, take the points that we're talking about today and insert your own little cocktail of wonderfulness. And I promise you that what we talk about today is still going to very much apply. But in direct relationship to envy and jealousy, point number one, it's not even a point. It's not even on your outline. It's more of a public service announcement. Uh, Take out your phones right now and just take 20 seconds and delete all forms of social media. If that is you right now, I invite you, I'll wait, I'll count, I won't count to 30. You kidding me? We got communion and they gave Dwight a mic. I don't have 30 seconds to give you. 
Okay? They took my 30 seconds. But what I can do is say, while I'm talking to you about this, do yourself a favor. Take it out. Facebook, Insta, what do you got? Stop scrolling. Just start deleting. It's fine. The data's there. Okay? In, in relationship to anxiety, depression, there is a reason why as our social media consumption goes up, these things increase in us. And while studies don't really seem to care about jealousy and envy very much, I'm sure that if we were to do a correlating study run alongside the ones that are already done, we would probably find that our social media consumption directly pertains to our struggle in areas of contentment or lack of peace. There are some very good things that social media is for. I just haven't found many of them personally, but uh, there are, right? There are blessings to staying connected, to being involved in other people's lives in ways that we never could before. And that is fantastic. And I'm not saying that social media is bad. What I am saying, though, is just a public service announcement, is take a step back and look at your own heart. Because it's funny... You know and I know that a lot of times the reason why we pick up our phones and start scrolling is because we want out of where we are. We want out of what we're currently thinking about, what we're currently dealing with, what we're currently trying not to think about or deal with. And so we pick up our phones and we start scrolling as though escaping to somebody else's airbrush reality is actually going to help us feel better about ours. Funny how sometimes that has an opposite effect, right? And so, just as an attempt for us to take a step back, hit the pause button, and look at our own hearts, where are your hearts, where is my heart as we scroll, as we view, as we post? Is it a breeding ground for peace and contentment? Or is it a struggle for you? Does it produce something else in you that should not be named among you. And if it does, how do you reduce or delete altogether something that isn't benefiting uh, you at the core of who you are? Now, this is a public service announcement because deleting social media off of your phone is not going to actually change anything. It may reduce an outlet, where envy and a lack of contentment and a lack of peace and, and, and high amounts of jealousy exist, but deleting social media can't actually change your heart, right? Jesus owns the market corner on that. We know that, and we read that in John 15.5, where Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now that's kind of... Jesus didn't actually mean nothing, right? We can do a lot of some things. It's just we can't really do anything of an eternal value. We can't do anything of lasting value in of ourselves. If we want to produce anything that is lasting, any fruit that is associated with our Savior in our lives, it is something that needs to come from Him and not from ourselves. Amen? And so as we look at something like, well, I'll just, I'll just become more content. I'll just become more at peace by deleting social media. No, it's a heart issue. 
And so you can cut yourself off at the past, and it may allow space for your heart to heal, for your, for your head to be able to think clearly and provide a space where you can actually dive deeper into your love for Jesus in a way that produces his fruit in you. So don't discount that as a viable option. But again, taking these things are, are shortcuts. And it's not going to produce fruit. That's something that only Jesus can do at the heart level. And so we need to look to him. How do we actually produce this, this fruit of lasting peace that isn't rooted in circumstances, of contentment? How do we actually walk through this world where we're not walking, looking to our right and left of what other people have or don't have, or how we stack up against, wondering why we don't, or when are we ever going to? How do we actually functionally do that as believers? Because it's hard. It's hard without social media, right? So let's look at what the scriptures say. Most of us know that peace is a fruit that Jesus deals in, but Paul makes clear that contentment is one as well. He says this in Philippians 4, uh, 10 through 12. He says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly now. At length, you have received your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Oh, teach us, Paul. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Point being, because true peace and contentment come from Christ, they are fruits of Jesus. They cannot be produced apart from Christ. Paul tells us the how, right? He says, how? How did I get there? That very last line. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Well, cool. So we know it comes from Jesus. So what do we do about that? What do we functionally do to pursue peace, to pursue contentment? Let's talk about that here. How do we abide in such a way that it produces His fruit of peace and contentment versus envy and jealousy? Or again, maybe not even peace and contentment, but whatever fruit you're looking at your life saying, man, I have this, but Christ promises this. What do I do? Where do I go? And not just during the Christmas season, but in every season. I think it starts in what we find in Romans uh, chapter 6. I have verses 6 through 11 on the board, but I actually want to start back in verse 4. Paul writes, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Hallelujah. For one who has died has been set free from sin. 
Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also, please hear this, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is a command of Scripture. This, this mindset, this viewpoint is a command in Scripture. Here we see that we must call jealousy and envy what it is and respond accordingly. The Bible is abundantly clear that envy and jealousy are not character traits of those uh, who are new creations in Christ. They're not to be named among us. So as followers of Jesus, we must purposefully abide in the reality that we are dead to this sin. That we are dead to these sins. We used to have no choice in the matter. No path to walk apart from the one that leads to death. But now that our old self has been crucified with Christ and the life we now live is done so in the power of Christ, the unbeatable power that sin once had over us has been beaten by Jesus Christ forever on the cross. Therefore, we no longer live for sin, feeding and giving in to its desires, but we seek to live for Christ in the power that He gives, pursuing righteousness with all we have. And because envy and jealousy are sins, there's something we fight, not something that we entertain. I know that these are sins because they're inward a lot of times, unless we act on them, they can take up a pretty sizable place in our heart space without ever actually being dealt with. Because we can silently fume as we scroll or as we drive down the block or as we see somebody in church or whatever, whatever the situation or scenario where, where we allow it to fester, we can do so silently. And therefore, we think that it has no real and lasting effect. But it does. And God cares as much about the silent sins of the heart as He does about the outward actions that other people see. You might not be a drunk falling down in the streets, but if you are somebody who is continuously allowing jealousy and envy for other people and their lives and what they have versus what you have to consume you and control you, then are we, ever, are we any better off? Truthfully, are we in any better spot? Maybe from a world standpoint. But we're not called to think like the world. We're called to think with the mind of Christ. Point being, if we continue to feed the flesh, we cannot expect to produce his fruit. And so do our thoughts, our words, our deeds, our meditations feed our old self or who we are now called to be? When jealousy and envy appear, when they, when they blip, whether for you it's just that little like boop, or for you it's that that comes out of you. What do we do when that happens? Are we fighting it or are we excusing it? Are we repenting of it or are we making room for it? 
Are we trying to cut it out of ourselves in the strength that Christ gives, denying it access at all costs, or are we coddling it? Are we hiding it? Are we holding it like it's something precious? That, oh, as long as nobody sees it, it's fine. If this is an area of struggle, have you invited your Lord into that struggle? It's so important for us to call it sin. Because we, for whatever reason, with the sin that we deal with, we will call it anything but We'll read about it in those long lists that Paul gives us. And it's like, oh yeah, envy and jealousy and drunkenness yeah, and, and uh, you know, the sensuality of every kind and let's focus on that. But like, no, there's actually some inward heart stuff that God says, no, I've, I've freed you from that. That's, that's your old self. That's your old life. And if that is popping up, that's something that is supposed to put you on your knees before the throne and ask God for the grace to overcome Ask Him with the power. Just like Dwight said, the the transforming of our minds, that is both something that happens to us and something that we press into. And so when we see things popping up, cropping up in our lives that should not be named among His beloved children, we bring that before the throne. We call it what it is and we respond accordingly by repenting and turning and saying, God, show me your path. Show me your way. Teach me to walk in a way that doesn't lead to the fruit that comes from this. Because if we continue to make room for the sin of jealousy and envy, we stand to reap its dreaded harvest that we see in James chapter 3. Starting in verse 16, it says, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits impartial and sincere and a harvest of right, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace what causes quarrels and fights among you is it not this that your passions are at war within you you desire and you do not have so you murder you covet and you cannot obtain and so you fight and quarrel. There is a harvest that comes when we decide to walk in the flesh. There is a harvest that comes with it. And as we sow those seeds and we refuse to pull out those weeds, it produces something in us. Yeah, we see the overflow in here of, of, of murder and, and rivalries and these fights and stuff. And, and maybe we can be more kosher about it. Maybe we can keep it more on the DL and not like kill each other, right? Maybe. And yet God gets in with a spiritual scalpel at the heart level and says, guys, if you know what this is, you would do anything to cut it out of you. If you understood the cancer that our sin is and the death that it causes and what it produces, you would stop at no cost to come before me and seek my grace, seek my face in order to rid this from you. He invites us to do that, even as believers. But it's that continual abiding, that continual coming, that continual confessing, that continual bringing ourselves before Him and saying, make me like you. 
And there's a process that Paul uh, kind of lays out in Philippians. I mean, he kind of has the uh, the secret sauce to contentment. And so we should probably go back there, right? It's like, I figured it out. kind of know how to do this. I'm very content. I'm a very content person. So we should probably go back. See what, see what he kind of laid out for us in Philippians a little bit. Let's start in chapter 3. By building a case uh, for finding justification before God based on his own righteous resume, Paul makes this statement about himself beginning in verse 7. He says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them all as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him in the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Here we see that in order to see contentment and peace or any fruits of Christ produced in us, we must see ourselves through the lens of Christ. We must see ourselves through the lens of Christ. So to put it another way, if we make much of ourselves, we will see little of Christ in ourselves. And Paul models that perfectly here. Paul had every reason to take confidence in his own resume from a worldly standpoint, and yet he saw himself and his own righteous works as nothing, and instead found himself in the person and work of Jesus Christ. No longer living to exalt his name above another in the eyes of God or in the eyes of man. No longer doomed, therefore, to face the envy and jealousy that results when one greater comes along. Because that's the case, isn't it? When we're living based on our own righteousness, when we are living to make much of ourselves, all is well and good until something better comes along. Someone better comes along. And then all of a sudden we are doomed to reap the harvest of self. When somebody comes up who's more successful, more spiritual, a better husband or wife, a better father or mother, or at least by appearance as we scroll, then all of a sudden when all of our confidence rests in who we are and what we do, we begin to see that fruit crop up, don't we? Of a, why do they? Why don't I? Shouldn't I? Don't I deserve? What did they do that I didn't? And all of a sudden, these things begin to show up in our lives rooted in a self-focus that isn't to be named among us. Paul lost himself and was found in Jesus. And in that new identity, there is peace and contentment to be found. But peace and contentment that is rooted in an identity that is rooted in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Not in ourselves. 
of the one who finds their identity in Christ. A.W. Tozer writes in The Pursuit of God, In himself, nothing. In God, everything. That is his motto. He knows well that the world will never see him as God sees him, and he has stopped caring. He rests perfectly content to allow God to place his own values. He will be patient to wait for the day when everything will get its own price tag and real worth come to its own. Then the righteous shall shine forth in the kingdom of their father. He's willing to wait for that day. That's a chapter on uh, meekness and rest. I would, I would greatly recommend the entire chapter on repeat for many years of your life. Um, I'm still repeating it because there is still so much dying to self that needs to take place and will continue to need to take place in my life all the days of my life. And yet that beginning point, where that begins, is in the finished work of Jesus Christ and His continued work on our behalf and finding ourself in Him Versus finding ourselves in what we do or who we think we are. He came to give us a new identity. Paul grasped this reality which impacted more than his view of himself, but his view of his life itself as well. We all know the verse in Philippians 1.21, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That was Paul's perspective on life. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For me to live is to make Christ the center of who I am, what I value, what I pursue, what I do, what my energy goes to, what my resources go to. Everything I am is about King Jesus and making His kingdom known. That is my life and to die is gain. Why? Because great is the reward for the one who does just that. And so while he stayed on this little round globe, he made Christ his center. He lived for Jesus. He lived for the things that Jesus called him to live for. How many of us would say that that is true of us? Could I honestly say that, that, is a, that that's an aim in my life come Tuesday? Friday, Sunday afternoon. How many of us are more distracted with building our own kingdom than being about the work of His kingdom? It's a fair question, right? We want the fruit, but do we want the life that follows the fruit? How many of us would say to live is promotion? To live is vacation? To live is good health? Or a happy home? To live is early retirement? All of those things produce fruit. They do. In the same way that Christ produces fruit. 
When Christ is at the center of our lives, the fruit that follows help us to actually make sense of statements like the one that we find in Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7, where Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. My kids, sorry. Uh, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Fruit that follows a life that is centered on Christ helps us understand the perspective that Paul had when writing this letter from a prison cell that we saw in Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Oh, glad to hear, Paul. So you're just sitting in prison. Served to advance the gospel. Why aren't you whining like I would be right now? Like, seriously? That's what you're talking to us about? Is it because you know that this is going to like turn into Scripture someday and so you want to look real good? No, this is the overflow of a heart that is rooted in Christ. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, the injustice that has been done to me, has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Most of us would look at that and say, la-di-da, Paul. Like, really? You're still in prison. What are you happy about? What are we even talking about here? This isn't even hindsight. You are writing this from a prison cell. You're not even looking back saying, yeah, but God was really good there. You are in the midst of your hard circumstances and you're looking at the upside? Yes. Yes. How can we expect peace and contentment like this? Well, we shouldn't expect peace that allows us to rejoice and give thanks in every circumstance. We shouldn't expect contentment that allows for the kind of perspective Paul had while sitting in prison unless, like Paul, we're willing to make Jesus Christ the foundation for who we are and why we live. Those are great verses. I mean, that, that Philippians 4, man, Hobby Lobby, right? Like, get that on your wall. Beautiful. Thinking like a dark background, white letters. Thinking some kind of... Some, Celeste, you would know what kind of wooden trim should be around that. You, you're already envisioning it in your mind. Sell it on Etsy. Be cute but to actually live it, to actually have it produce living fruit in us. That's a whole other ballgame. The peace and contentment Christ offers is supernatural, and it's not going to come through natural means. It just won't. Unlike our world, his peace and contentment run deeper than how our circumstances compare to another person. Unlike our world, his peace and contentment rest in more than us having more than another person. They're real. These things are real. 
Matthew 6.33 says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. When we live our lives with King Jesus at the center, we position ourselves to produce his fruit in us and so much more. But there are no shortcuts to that. There are no shortcuts to that. And when we are living our lives for lesser things, we stand to produce a lesser kind of fruit. We must see our sin, ourselves, and our lives through the lens of Christ. And it's only possible when our gaze is continually fixed upon Jesus. Right? How are we actually going to get there unless our eyes are glued to Jesus? And so in the midst of this, uh, this loss of identity found in Christ that we see in chapter three, and this loss of a, of a lifeless life for, for a life that is rooted in Christ that we see in chapter one, we see Paul write one of the most beautiful pictures of Jesus. In Philippians chapter 2, and I don't think that there's a, maybe it's just really convenient for my sermon outline, could be, but I think there's something to be said in a life and a self that is centered on Christ, and it comes when our gaze is fixed on Him. And so we read this right in the middle of that, Philippians 2, 6 through 11. Speaking of Jesus, Paul says, "...who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself." By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father." We look to this text today not for what it says, which is a lot. We go to it often. Whenever we are speaking of Jesus and, and Him coming to earth and what that accomplished and what His heart was in the midst of that, we go to this text a lot. But I don't want to go to it for what it says. I want to go to it for what it does, what this text accomplishes, which is drawing our eyes back to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Paul wrote this to draw the Philippians away from their sin of pride and selfishness and back to Jesus. Today we read it in hopes of drawing our eyes away from the sin of jealousy and envy or whatever sin that we are wrestling with today and to bring our eyes back to Jesus. Regardless of why we look to Jesus, we must do so all the days of our lives to set our gaze upon the one we are called to reflect and to set our gaze upon the one who now lives in us, who now has the power, the authority to produce fruit in us. This is a reality that we abide in. And every time we look to him, every time we lift our eyes to him, we see something other than this. Other than me on my best day, me on my worst day, my life under the best of circumstances, my life under the worst of circumstances. When we see Jesus in his rightful place in our lives, we begin to see our lives as they really are. We begin to see ourselves as we were truly made to be. Because to live is Christ. 
and to lose ourself in the name of Jesus, to set our eyes on the person and work of Jesus. Guys, that produces fruit. The fruit that we really want to see in our lives. He is the one who is to be at the center of who we are. He is the one who not only offers grace for every sin that we commit, but He is also the one who offers hope of victory over the sins that we continue to fight. And so we go back to what Paul said, the secret sauce. In every situation I learn how to be content. How? I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. That's the secret sauce. It's Jesus. And if we want to get to peace and contentment through any other means, and if we seek other means to bring it about in our lives, oh, that's going to be some fruit that you don't want. And so we must continue to behold Christ all the days of our lives. Or to put it another way, if our gaze is fixed on lesser things, we are settling for less than all that is ours in Christ. Now you might be sitting here a little frustrated because you were hoping to leave here today with three simple steps to peace and contentment for your holiday season. You were hoping that me, like a Macy's worker, would sit up here for 45 minutes. I'd be like, oh, how's your shopping experience? You have a good day? You sing songs you like today? Yeah? You ready for communion tonight? Yeah, that's going to be nice. Yeah, okay, well, here's your gift wrap and there's a nice little bone. There you go, peace and contentment. Have a great day. Free. That'd be nice, wouldn't it? <sighs> I wish. As though the sermon could do that. But the fact is that real fruit takes a little longer than 42 minutes to grow. And if anybody tells you that they have fruit that they want you to try, that they grew in 42 minutes, you should probably avoid consuming it. It's probably not good for you. Christ came to offer us himself. Emmanuel, God with us. The point of him dying for us is to restore what was taken from us, which is relational intimacy and union with him. That's what we are separated from. That is the death that we inherited. And that can stretch out for all of eternity. And yet Christ came and offered himself to put our hand back into the hand of God, to put what was made far from us within us, to actually make home in us until the crescendo in Revelation when the dwelling place of God becomes ta-da with man. Guys, He is the gift. He is the gift that we are to pursue to dwell in us, to give us identity, a life that is centered on Him, one that brings about His fruit. And if you have never entered into that relationship with Jesus Christ, if you have never called on Him to be the Lord of your life, the one who you answer to, the one who calls the shots, the one who you bow to even above you, 
the one whose life, death, and resurrection defines you, if you have never asked him to be the Savior and the sin covering for every sin that you have ever or will ever commit, then that is step one. That is step one. And if you don't know the first thing about how to do that, we want to help you do that today. We're celebrating communion, which is a remembrance of what Christ did for us on the cross. For those of us who know what he did, we will celebrate that. For those of us who don't, we want to help you understand the full weight of what he did and what that means for you. So come and talk to one of us after the sermon. There will be elders up front that you can come and talk to or email at harborshores.org. Let's start that conversation. But for those of you who have, you know Jesus is your Lord and Savior. You've been there. But man, you are still wrestling with jealousy, with envy, with something then again, this process applies in every single area that we find ourselves struggling in. Behold the one who is with you, who is in you, who is in love with you, who is empowering you. And let he who is and what he has done be that which defines who you are and how you live. And by his grace and power, may we experience not only his perfect peace and contentment, but the fullness of all that is for us in Christ. The fullness of all that he meant for those who he now dwells in. But we must go to him. We must look to him as our life, as our identity. And whenever we see something that is looking to replace his rightful place, then that is something that needs to be put to death in us. And so may we encourage each other all the more as the day draws near to do just that. I'm going to pray and then we are going to reflect upon our amazing Savior and what he did for us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you so much. Not just for the fact that you came 2,000 years ago, but that you're here now, that you are inside of me, that your spirit speaks through me for the encouragement and the edification of your body, that to each person here who knows you as their Lord and Savior, that you make home in their heart, that you are working to bring about something in them that they cannot possibly do by themselves. We thank you for the power that is at work in this place now. And I just surrender myself to you fully and completely. God, I want my mind to be transformed. I want my life to be transformed. I want you to renew me until you make me fully new. And I thank you that I am a new creation. I thank you that I have an ability to even come to you where before I didn't. And so God, I pray that you would carry out this work that you started in me and bring it to completion. We look to you for that. We love you. We pray this all in the name of your Son. Amen.